As we uh, begin today, uh, I, I see that there are some faces here that maybe haven't been with us. Hey, I'm related to you. Uh, some of, uh, haven't been with us on our journey through the book of Luke, and so I want to catch you up a little bit. But if we're going to do that, if we're going to enter into this, uh, this study today in the book of Luke, you're going to want to have the text of the story. You're going to want to have the weapon to go into battle. You're going to want to have the club to go golfing. See where I'm going with this? You want to have a Bible. You don't need to hear what I have to say. You need to have a Bible in your hand. So if you don't have one with you or you don't have one of your own, just lift your hand up and we'll make sure you've got one. Uh, Mr. Todd's back there. He'll, he'll make sure that everybody's covered. Uh, so you, oh, we need one up front here, Todd. We've got, uh, I think we've got a couple of spots. Brad, I feel a little hot. I'm hearing that ring there, so I'm not sure, I'm not sure what that's about. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's the mic placement. It's because I don't have a collar today. That's what it's about. I had to, had to wear my RV playoff shirt today. Woo! That's not distracting. Uh, so I, I just got used to not wearing a T-shirt. Now I get back into it. So anyway, as we're, uh, as we're going through this, you want to have God's word because you don't need my opinion. You need to know what truth is. And I don't determine truth. God does. My opinion means little. There are two opinions in the universe that matter. God's opinion because it's reality and your opinion because that determines what you're going to do with God's opinion. So you need to get God's word to be able to, to get a hold of this. We're going to be in the book of Luke, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are called Gospels. We often refer to them this way. We'll talk about the Gospel according to Matthew or the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and for many of you, that might seem weird. You're not quite sure why it's called a gospel. What does that mean? So, generally speaking, the Greek word uh, that we render gospel means good news or good story. Literally, the good telling. So we want to we understand these in that way. These four books of the Bible are the telling of the good news, the good story, if you will, of who Jesus is. It's good news because we have a problem. We have a sin problem that separates us from God. But God made a way to fix that problem because you and I both couldn't and wouldn't. The reality is if it were up to us to live for God, not only could we not, I don't really have to preach to you a whole lot about that, you know yourself. You know that your best efforts still fall short. But what's more important for us to perhaps recognize is that we wouldn't. Romans chapter 8 says that the, the sinful heart is hostile toward God. It's not even capable of submitting to God until God reaches in and snatches us from ourselves. The awesome thing is that he does that by putting on flesh in Jesus Christ and coming into our world. Every world religion is about how we can get to God. Christianity is not a religion. It's the reality that God has already come to us and seeks a relationship with us so we can forget about all the trappings. He wants our hearts. We're going to talk about that a little bit today in Luke chapter 8. So uh, if you're not sure what it is, it's probably about four-fifths of the way through your Bible, depending on what else you've got in there. We're going to look at Luke chapter 8. I'm not sure why I'm in Matthew right now, but I'm going to go to Luke. Now, as we've been going through the book of Luke, Luke's gospel has a very specific purpose, 
And he tells us in chapter 1 what that purpose is. He says right out of the gate, I'm writing this to my friend Theophilus. He says, dear Theophilus, which by no accident also happens to mean God lover. So he's writing not only to his friend named Theophilus, but also to all of us who love God, who want to know truth. And he says, I'm writing this after investigating it all myself. Luke was not raised in this background. He's the only Gentile writer of Scripture, the only non-Jew writing. And as he's writing these things down, it's because he's already grappled with it himself. And he's come to grips with the fact that everything I knew before this doesn't even matter. What was true was unimportant, and the rest was false. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's come to wrestle with that himself. He believes in that himself. And now he's passing this on. He's saying, Theophilus, I'm writing this letter in an orderly way, having checked it all out so that you can know the certainty of what you've been taught. As we read the book of Luke, keep in mind the purpose of his writing is specifically so that we can know what to believe and that what we believe is worth believing. The theme of Luke's gospel is kind of summarized in Luke 19.10 as he talks about the, uh, the fact that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus came to outsiders, not to church people. Now he does go and he preaches in the, what would be the church at the time, the synagogue. But his message isn't generally received by the good religious folks. It's received primarily by those who were considered the dregs of society. The, the drunkards, the prostitutes, the crooked politicians, the bullies. Those people who were bad by everybody's standard. And weren't really even trying to pretend otherwise. But when Jesus came to them and he gave them the message, which all boiled down to repent, the kingdom of God is near. And he says it in very authoritative ways. But as he comes and gives them the truth, the people that everybody else is rejecting get it. And the people that everybody else is respecting don't. That's a pretty big thing for us to recognize as we go through the book of Luke. Now, having preached throughout the countryside, and, and in his preaching has kind of upset the religious leaders because they were pretty comfortable, and what he's preaching is anything but comfortable. Now we get to a place in Luke chapter 8 where he's speaking again to the crowds, and he's speaking by telling a story. Jesus is a storyteller. So as he's preaching the, the message... He's not doing what I'm doing, standing up here and I'm going to say, here, here's, here's truth, accept truth, here's an illustration of the truth, here's an application of the truth. He does that more in conversations, and he does plenty of preaching, but in this particular case, we see a pattern that, that evolves over, not really evolves, but becomes the standard for the ministry of Christ throughout the rest of this gospel, and it's, it's highlighted here in chapter 8. Let's read the story together. I'll be reading from an older edition of the New International Version than what you have if you have one of our uh, paperback Bibles that we passed out here. Or if you're reading a, a newer edition that was updated in 2011. So if the words sound a little bit different, it's the same, uh, but a different rendering uh, than what you'll hear from me, perhaps. Starting with verse 1. After this, 
Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news, the gospel, of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him. If you were with us, you know that just a short time before this, he called apart from his followers, from his disciples, uh, twelve that were made special messengers. The word we use for that special messenger position is apostle. Uh, it's a unique position to this time in the New Testament for those who personally saw Christ and were commissioned by him. Uh, so apostles in that sense do not exist today. There are Many people can use that term apostle and in a general sense as a special messenger that can apply perhaps appropriately. Uh, but more often than not, uh, it's being used in, in ways that are not necessarily fitting. Because these are folks who were specially set apart by Jesus. So the twelve are with him. Here's another significant piece. Verse 2. Also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Here are their names. Mary, called Magdalene. You may be familiar with her. You may be seen movies or heard stories about her. And much of what you've heard may be not biblical. <clears throat> so Mary... There's no place in the Bible that tells us that Mary was a prostitute, that she was a woman of ill repute. We see that she was a woman who had seven demons cast out of her. Other things that have been ascribed to various traditions do not have a biblical or even necessarily a historical credibility to them. But we see here that Mary, known as Magdalene, she's from the area of Magdala, from whom seven demons had come out, was among these women, Verse 3, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, <coughs> excuse me, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Before we go on with the rest of it, I just want you to, to grasp this. Luke is pointing this out in a very patriarchal society, in a very, uh, in a setting that was very uh, Judeo-centric, if I can use that term. So he's writing as the only Gentile writer. Up until this time, most of the folks in leadership had been Jews. So their view of things was very, very patriarchal. Women were not focused on among the Jewish religion of that time. Neither were, was anybody outside of Judaism. If you were a Gentile, if you weren't born a Jew, and if you didn't practice, then you were outside of Judaism. You were a Gentile. Luke, as a Gentile, focuses heavily on the, the emphasis that Christ puts on the least, the last, and the lost. Those people who are overlooked by society, oppressed, downtrodden, ethnic groups that people don't want around. Je Jesus goes to these people. Those with incurable diseases, and specifically to those with transmittable diseases, like leprosy, skin conditions, that would cause you to be both physically and ceremonially, religiously, unclean. And Jesus goes right to them. And he doesn't wait for them to clean up, he seeks them out. Remember, he came to seek and to save that which was lost. So uh, Jesus has got, he's, not only does he have these women with him, but these women are helping to support the ministry out of their own means. Not, not relying on some man. There's an independence here. Now, we don't want to get overboard with that. Sometimes we'll hang on a particular text uh, and we'll grab out a verse and say, oh, well, see, this, this just shows that all of our 
feminism is the right thing. There is no text that shows that any of our current practices of life are the right thing. Doesn't matter what you think you're doing, we all think we're right, and if we start to look for proof texts, we can justify a lot of things. In fact, the KKK does the same thing. So they'll go back to scriptures, take a piece out, twist it, and make it mean something that it doesn't mean. Jesus and Christianity elevated the role of women in society above any other factor in human history. We didn't do that in America. We're on the tail end. And we blew it after Jesus grew it, and now we've got to redo it. Let me get back to the sermon here. I'm going to use up all my time getting set up here. So they're helping to support them by their own means. Let's pick up with verse 4. While a large crowd was gathering, that tended to happen when Jesus was preaching. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. And as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on and the birds of the air ate it up. Some fell on rock. And when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it. <clears throat> which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. When he said this, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This was a favorite phrase of Christ. We'll talk about it in a little bit. His disciples asked him what the parable meant. He said, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God, I would underline that, phrase, secrets of the kingdom of God, if it were me. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to others I speak in parables, so that, here he quotes the Old Testament, this is Isaiah 6, 9, so that though seeing, they may not see, though hearing, they may not understand. This is the meaning of the parable. Isn't it nice that he gives us this? He's just going to explain it. It just makes my job so much easier when he says, here's what I mean, and, and, and it's all laid out for us. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are, those, are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they, so that they may not believe and be saved. <clears throat> Those on the rock, or rocky soil, is perhaps a better rendering. If you have the newer NIV, I believe it renders it rocky soil. Those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it. But they have no root. They receive it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear. But as they go on their way... They're choked out by life's worries, riches, pleasures, and they don't mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. The story continues on to verse 21, so we'll read through that even though we're going to stop our focus here today. 
No one lights a lamp and hides it in a jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, he puts it on a stand so that those who come can see the light. For there's nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, will be taken from him. Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside waiting to see you. He replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you for giving us your word. I want to thank you for the privilege of being able to read it ourselves. So much of the world and so much of history, we've not had that privilege. So we thank you. Lord, we thank you also for hiding your word from the wise and learned and making it clear to the simple, to those who are like children. Help us to be like that, Lord. Make us ready to receive it. Give us ears to hear that we might understand. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we look at this, <clears throat> this is a story about a farmer. But it's not really about the farmer. It's a story about the farmer who's sowing seed. But it's not entirely about the seed. It's also about the soil. And so Jesus makes it clear what the meaning is here. And there's a single point. There's a secret in the story that we need to discover. So as we start, let's start with the setting. So the crowds are gathering. Jesus has been uh, addressing all of these people. The, uh, he's been dealing with the outcasts. He's been dealing with the poor. He's been dealing with people that nobody else wants around. You know, the, the, the mean, ornery folks. You know, the, the, the yelly and the smelly. So Jesus now has offended the wealthy people by calling them out. He has offended the good religious people. Uh, as he's been, been telling them, everything you thought you knew, you were wrong. You thought you knew the law of God? Guess again. You misunderstood. Let me clarify this for you. Even going so far as to say very clearly and explicitly that he himself was God. Luke establishes that early in the gospel, saying that Jesus is both fully God and fully human. And Jesus really ticks off the religious leaders when he says, you think that you understand the Sabbath, but I'm telling you, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Only God is the master of the Sabbath. God instituted it before the law even came into existence. Jesus is saying, as he says elsewhere, even before Abraham was, I am. And he identifies himself with God in many ways like this throughout the early parts of this gospel. Now the folks that are there with him have been following. There are almost always, when Jesus is speaking to these crowds, those in attendance who are looking to catch him. Some are there because they're devoted to him. Some are there, <coughs> excuse me, much like a church service. Some are there because they're already in. They're devoted to him. <coughs> Others are there because they're curious. Something's going on. I heard about this preacher, and i got to go check it out. You know, maybe, maybe they caught the podcast or something. I, I don't know. But they're, they're getting the word. They're excited about the healings that they've heard about. They're excited about the miracles that Jesus has done. They're excited about the authoritative preaching. 
but they don't really know what to make of it all. They're coming as the curious crowd. And then there are those who are there to catch him doing wrong. Those religious leaders and others who are turned against him, they've already decided this isn't true, he isn't a prophet, and therefore, let's go listen so we can tear him apart. i got to confess, I, I, many people that, that share uh, much of my doctrinal background, uh, the beliefs that I would uh, hold to be very clear biblical teaching, seem to get caught up in that lately. There are a lot of folks on social media looking to, to maybe, maybe call them heresy hunters. They're so busy going out and chasing down all the false teachings of everybody else that what they're really doing is tearing down the church. They're trying to pull out weeds and they're pulling up the good plants as well because they're so busy trying to show where everyone else is wrong. It doesn't do you any good to be right in your doctrine if you're not right in your heart and your treatment of other people. So those folks are always in the crowd here. As Jesus is doing this, he tells the story. The story itself is pretty simple. There's a farmer. The farmer sowing seed. The seed falls on four different types of soil. Three of them are bad. One of them is good. In the good soil, good things happen, and we get a harvest, which is what the farmer wants, right? The farmer wants a harvest. We have, to my knowledge, we have one full-time farmer in our, in our midst here. Caleb's been uh, harvesting a lot right now, right? We've been pretty busy with that. This is the time of year that the farmer looks forward to. The rest of the year is work. This is when you begin to have it pay off, right? So if you plant a field, I'm looking at Caleb because it's good to put him on the spot and make him uncomfortable. When he's at church. So <clears throat> when you plant a field and the field doesn't come up, we're not feeling good about that, right? This is a bad situation. We've got to figure out why so we can fix it. Because the point of sowing the seed is the harvest. The point of planting is the harvest. Now, the farmer here does it a little bit differently than what we do. Modern farming involves a lot of machinery and very orderly rows. But ancient farming in this agrarian society involved casting it out. You would scatter the seed somewhat indiscriminately. It's a little bit like preaching the gospel. Jesus is out here preaching the word to everybody. All the four different soil types are, are getting this same seed of the Word of God. We don't know who's going to receive it and who's not. So we just keep sowing. And that idea of sowing and reaping is pretty prominent in the Scripture. Today, we're focusing in on these soil types. So we've got the setting, we've got the story. And then we have a little piece that I'm going to call the sorting. Yes, I was trying to have some alliteration, so I stretched a little bit on this. But this is what we're talking about. There's a sorting that takes place. The, uh, the followers that are with him ask him, and I take it to be that this is the 12 primarily that are asking from the way he talks to them. They're asking him, excuse me, in verse 9, what he meant. What, what, what's the deal? In another, uh, in another rendering of this, in Matthew and also in Mark, they ask, why are you speaking in parables? In fact, let's take a look at it. Turn to Matthew, um, Matthew chapter 13. So if you're in Luke, back up to the left. And basically, this is Matthew telling the same story from a different perspective, different guy. Matthew was in all likelihood present at the time. Luke was not. So Luke is getting this story from others, in all likelihood Paul. 
and then sorting through this through personal interviews and wrestling with it. He may have even talked to Matthew. He may have even talked to Peter. He may have talked to some of these women who were left behind. He may have talked to Mary, the mother of Jesus. What we do know is that he investigated personally. Matthew, on the other hand, as an eyewitness to most of these things, is sharing from a slightly different perspective. Verse 10 of Matthew chapter 13, the disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? Now in Matthew's telling, Jesus is in a boat, and Luke focuses in on this one particular parable, but Matthew shares a bunch of parables. And says, at this time, he spoke to them in many parables. And we see them laid out here. Why, why are you talking to them in parables? Verse 11, Jesus explains it. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more. He who, <clears throat> excuse me, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I, spoke, I speak to them in parables. And then again, he quotes Isaiah 9. But he also quotes a little bit more. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them, this is really, really important here, especially to Matthew. Matthew is a, a Jewish man writing to a Jewish audience. So he's focusing heavily on the fulfillment of God's promises and his warnings to Israel. And in this particular case, this passage is a, a condemnation that God spoke to his people Israel. Because they had turned their backs, because they had hardened their hearts, they're going to see it, they're not going to get it. I'm going to then, because they've hardened their hearts to me, I'm going to harden their hearts so that they can't grasp this. And he says to them, uh, uh, Jesus says here in verse 14, In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. That's what God wanted from Israel. They just wanted his stuff. He wanted them, and he wanted them to want him, not just his blessing. The same is true for us. And then here in Matthew, Jesus goes on to say to his followers who grasp it, but blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. Jesus is speaking in parables in a sense to sort out these different types of soil. Every time we get together, any group of any size, we're here uh, in worship together and we know for sure that there are people who are devout believers who love the Lord. There are people who have maybe never even heard this before. There are people who are here, but they're not really even trying to receive it. They're going through the motions. Maybe they've been in church their whole lives, but their hearts are hard. We have people who are so consumed with other things that they just really can't even focus on God. One of the things that really troubles me is so often in our churches, and I pray that this, I pray that if this is you at real life, that you become painfully uncomfortable. So often in the American church today, we have believers who are more interested in the show, more interested in the emotion. Man, that was a great song. 
man, I was, I was crying during that song. We were raising our hands in worship. And, and you all know me. I, I'm a crier. <coughs> I can admit it. Get over it. All right. That does not diminish my masculinity. Not one bit. But the reality of it is, if, if I'm caught up in the... Okay, that one. But if I'm caught up in the emotion of it, if I'm caught up in the feelings of it, if I'm caught up in this moment because that preacher was just dynamic and, and boy, he got me. He just really got me in the heart that day. Then the next day when stuff gets hard and I don't have roots and I'm not looking for something deeper, it gets to be a real struggle. Before I entirely sidetrack my own sermon, I want to come back. The parables are the sorting. Now, uh, to go back to Caleb, because since he's here, I can pick on him. When, when you go out and you harvest, we use a combine out there, there are shakers and screens that are going to sort out the grain from all the other stuff, right? All of the, the things that you want to get fall through, and the things that you don't want to get go out, and they shoot out the back, and, and, and they do what unwanted things do. They drive and disappear and blow away in the wind. But the good stuff stays. Jesus is using this like a harvester, like a combine, to be able to sort out those who are here for real and those who are just part of the crowd. These four types of soils show up. Okay, we got the background, we got the story, we got the sorting. Now, these soils. This is the meaning of the parable. He clarifies this. You've got the good soil. We'll get to that at the end, just like he did. But you have seed that falls on the path. So imagine if you're going to be planting. Uh, we're not going to plant in rows. We're just going to cast our seed up. I'm going to go out here on Elm Street and throw that seed on the street. How much of that's going to grow? It's not, right? It's going to get run over. It's going to get trampled on. Birds and squirrels and maybe a strange cat that's lost its mind is going to go pick up these seeds and take them away. And Jesus says that's what the devil does. In a hard heart, the word is there, but it doesn't connect. And in the hardness of that moment, the devil snatches it away. The opportunity is gone. The moment is gone. We want to stay away from that. Second type of soil he mentions... <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm still in Matthew. I gotta get back to Luke. Second type of soil that he mentions here uh, is that uh, that rocky soil. It's shallow. It's not rich. It's not fertile. And the seed it, it, it takes root and it germinates. It begins to to grow up, but it doesn't have any depth. It doesn't have any roots going down into the meaningful places where you get the moisture and the nutrients. It's just sitting up in the topsoil. Rocky, dry. And it grows fast because it gets that sunlight on it hot. But the problem is it doesn't last. That's true for most things in life, by the way. Just a little sidebar, not, not necessarily coming from our text, but just a reality. Things that come fast usually don't last. Just, just a principle to keep in mind. So all your quick money schemes, throw them away. Not a healthy way to go. Now, back to the story. This is a problem. This is a problem in receiving the gospel because we can receive it, but if it doesn't take root, then we're going to struggle. We'll get to the detail of that in just a, a little bit here. But, but by now, in, in hearing these soil types, you should begin to identify some things. 
And maybe you're seeing yourself. Maybe you're seeing yourself in one of these four, and hopefully by the time we get done, we can take the maybe out of that. The, uh, the third type of soil that we see. It's good soil. So there's, there's a start. So the seed takes root. And maybe the seed is getting good moisture and nutrients. To, to carry out the metaphor of the parable, we're really talking about doctrine and truth and teaching. And, and you're getting that growth, right? The problem is, there's a lot of other stuff growing around it. And those thorns, those weeds are choking it out. And for us in life, we get choked out by a lot of things. And it's not that we didn't receive it. It's not that we didn't take hold of it. It's that we've been distracted. And we don't grow. We don't mature because our focus is on other stuff. That's important for us to recognize. Lastly, this is the good soil. Now, this is the only kind you want, right? Right, Caleb? You only want stuff that's growing. So notice here that in the good soil, it grows and Jesus doesn't go into a lot of detail about it. It grows and it produces a crop, produces a harvest. Why? Because that's what it's supposed to do. A good seed in good soil, in good conditions, will always produce a crop. If not, it's either not good seed. We know the Word of God is always good seed. Amen? I'm going to try that again. We know the Word of God is always good seed. Amen? Yeah. See, now I feel a little more like a Baptist or something. You know, get some amens in here. We're not Baptists, but we'll take it. Get those good amens. If you've got good seed and you've got good soil, the person that's receiving it, and the conditions are right, in other words, that soil is being maintained properly, it's being watered, it's being fertilized, then you will always get growth and production. It's interesting that Jesus mentions only four types. I want to make sure I'm really, really clear about this. Every single one of us falls somewhere in the spectrum of these four types. So when I said maybe earlier, take the maybe out. Find yourself here because you are in one of these four categories and so am I. And We need to figure it out. Jesus says that there's a secret here. That's why he's telling these, these parables. Because not everybody's going to get it. In the other Gospels, he points out that this is a mystery that's been hidden, but is now revealed to you. Paul points that out in several of his letters. That the mystery that's been hidden from the beginning is now revealed in Christ. Here's the secret of the parable. It is our core reality for today. When the word takes root, it produces fruit. Now it's simple, and I apologize if it sounds like I'm trying to come up with something catchy. It was, it was the best way of saying it that I had. I want you to be able to remember it, but I don't want it to become trite for you. Because this isn't about how I word it. It's about the truth of God's word. What is he saying here? And the single point that Jesus is making, among all the smaller points, is that when God's word gets in us, 
and it digs into us and we receive it and we retain it and we persevere in it, then it produces a harvest in our lives. When the word takes root, it produces fruit. Say that with me. When the word takes root, it produces fruit. We got to remember this. Not just today. It's not going to be a quiz here. I'm not going to call you up and say, hey, did you, did you write down the core reality? Because every single day of your life is your quiz. That's your test. What are you going to do with it? Where do you find yourself in this spectrum? And what will you do about it? Healthy growth naturally produces fruit. Lack of growth or lack of production indicates a health issue that needs to be addressed. <clears throat> if a farmer plants a field and it doesn't come up, the first question he's got to ask after what am I going to tell my wife is, why? What is wrong? Because it's supposed to come up. I put the seed in the ground. The seed comes up and produces a harvest. I'm basing my life on this truth. Now, if it doesn't, something's wrong. Maybe the soil is not proper. Maybe it was bad seed. Maybe we didn't put it in right. Maybe, maybe it got washed out in the floods and the rains. Maybe we're not getting enough water, so if I don't get enough water, I need to irrigate. I need to get water to it somehow. If the soil isn't fertile enough, then I add fertilizer. But I've got to do something to make this right. There are health issues that we need to address so that what is naturally supposed to happen, happens with this seed. So when the word takes root, it produces fruit. And we want to take a look at how can we address these things. There are four soil types, and we're going to see in this some things that become obstacles for us to being the right kind of soil type. First, let's take a look at hardness. Hardness. I must receive God's word. Now, this sounds really simple because it is really simple. But the issue about receiving God's word is the hardness of my heart. Am I going to be willing to respond to this? And if I've already made my mind up, if I've already decided I know what truth is, therefore anything that comes in I'm going to throw away, then I'm not going to be able to receive God's word. Now, <clears throat> take a look at Romans chapter 1. You can keep your, your mark in Luke <clears throat> so that we can come back there. But turn to the right, past John, past Acts, to the book of Romans. And in the first chapter, Paul is describing the human condition. Anyone who tells you that Paul is talking about any particular group of people is sadly mistaken at best and is deceitful at worst. Paul is talking about all of us as humans. And every single one of us is separated by God from sin. And as a race... The only race in the Bible is the human race. So as we look at the race of man, we have all fallen, both individually and collectively. <clears throat> Excuse me, we're going to pick up with verse 18. Romans 1, 18 and following. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, 
They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. He goes on to describe more of this, but the point is, because we decided we know better than God, that was the nature of what happened in the Garden of Eden, the serpent said, hey, God's not really telling you the whole story, good looking fruit, have a bite. Hey, you know what, maybe, God, maybe God's not really right. Maybe I know better. I'm going to have some of that fruit. Guess what? Spoiler alert. God's always right. So when God says this is going to bring death, it may not be the death that you thought was coming, but it's coming. The death is here. And ever since then, we've had to suffer through that, and all of us do the same thing. There's a hardness that we have. Flip to the middle of your Bible to Psalm 95, verse 8. For most of you, your Psalms will be right in the middle. We're very, very close to it. The psalmist writes in this, as he has been, uh, as he's referring back to what God said to his people in the desert. They had hardened their hearts against him, and they grumbled against God. And the same passage is quoted in the book of Hebrews as a call to the gospel. The psalmist writes, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the desert. God is calling us. We have a choice. If you harden your heart, you cannot receive the gospel. The gospel is what we need. The gospel is where we find truth. John 1.12 tells us that as many as received him, to them he gives the right to become children of God. Now, we use that term a lot, children of God, as if everybody's a child of God, and that's not really accurate. Uh, we're, when we talk about it in that broad sense, we're speaking of people being created in God's image. But this is very specific. Those who are children of God are those who are special in a unique relationship to Him. God loves everybody, right? Yes, He does. But some, His heart breaks over for they're destined for destruction. But for as many as receive him. So that the Lord came to his own and they didn't receive him. They rejected him. Speaking of Israel, but also speaking of the rest of us. When we reject the one who is made to save us. But when we receive him. In that receiving, he changes our identity. In a full adoption, our, we become his child by choice with all the full rights of a natural-born child, we become co-heirs with Christ. And everything that is spiritual, tr spiritually true of Jesus is spiritually true of us. And the Father looks on us the same way He looks at Christ, as holy. If you're a believer in Him, if you have turned from your way to His way and received the gospel, then you're a child of God. 
Not because you deserve it. Raise your hand if you deserve it. Anybody? Do you deserve to be a child of God? Now some of you probably think that and you're not going to raise your hand because it's pressure in here, right? But I've seen at least five times in the last 24 hours on various social media platforms all of these things saying you're good enough, you are worthy, you are worthy of respect, you are valuable, you are good. And if we're honest with ourselves, we already know it's a lie. You already know it. Now, you might be good compared to the person next to you. You might be good compared to Adolf Hitler or Idi Amin, or you might be good compared to a guy that goes and shoots up a synagogue. That's pretty low-hanging fruit. I'm faster than that chair, too. That doesn't really help a whole lot. But holiness is measured against God's standard, and every person falls short of that standard. If we harden ourselves to him then we're not going to be able to receive the gospel. But if we do, 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that we are new creatures. You're new. Restarted. And God gives you a new heart. Throughout the book of Ezekiel, he uses that terminology. He uses that constant terminology that I will take the heart of stone out of you and I will give you a heart of flesh, a soft and responsive heart. Let that hardness go. Ask God to give you a new heart that can receive the gospel. We see also a shallowness. Now, if you will know right now based on your own response here, whether you have hardened your heart against God. And if you're thinking, boy, I already know all this kind of stuff. This guy, he's so off the mark. Well, then you probably fall into that path. But you may think this is a really boring sermon. And if you think this is a really boring sermon, then it's possible you fall into the next part. Because if you're measuring the sermon by the preacher, then we're still in rocky soil. If you're measuring the church by the band or the music or the decor, if it's religious enough or too religious, we're judging it by human standards. Well, what we need to be looking at is, am I I able to get the word of God here? Our hunger needs to be for more than the shallow emotion of religion. I must pursue God's word. I wrestled with what word to use here. I need to pursue it. A seed in the soil is looking for something. Not consciously, they don't have a brain, but they do function in a certain way. And in the interest of survival and growth... That seed is seeking moisture. And when it begins to break out of that hard shell on the outside of the seed, it takes in moisture, it takes in nutrients, but it it actually goes out into it. Then it puts down roots, and those roots spread out into the ground. And if they find something, they keep going to take more and more and more. Is that how you treat God's Word? Are you just sitting on the surface of it? I'm going to come get a little bit on Sunday morning. 
Maybe I'm going to watch a little Christian television show or, you know, click on some Facebook memes or turn on my Christian radio, and that's enough? Or do you hunger for it? Are you craving God's word? Now, last night, I was craving pizza, right? And the moment I had an opportunity to get a hold of that pizza, look out, buddy, nothing's stopping me from getting to that pizza. If you doubt me, try to take my pizza sometime. That needs to be the same way I approach God's word. Nothing will ever stop me from getting a hold of the truth of God's word. I'm hungry for it. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes you're not hungry for it. And you have to choose to be hungry. When a child transitions from milk or formula to solid food, it can be a struggle. They don't always love it. They have to learn to love it. They have to choose to eat it, and parents have to choose to move them forward with it. 1 Peter 2.2 talks about this hungering for milk, and he's speaking, Peter's speaking to new believers. He's establishing the, the foundation of the gospel. And he's saying, listen, you need to crave pure spiritual milk like a newborn baby. And if you're going to crave this milk like a newborn baby, there's a purpose that you will grow. You grow from that. But a baby at a certain point has to get off of that milk, doesn't it? And it has to continue to grow. And therefore, we see, excuse me, uh, we see the same concept in a different perspective in Hebrews chapter 5. Let's turn there. It's toward the back of your Bible. If you go to, get to Peter, you went too far. Hebrews is right before James. The book of Hebrews is written to, to the scattered tribes of Israel throughout the world rather than those who are gathered together. And we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 5 just to get another take on this. The writer of Hebrews uses the same picture. Paul will also use it with the, the Corinthian church. In Hebrews chapter 5, starting with verse 12... Hmm. Let me back up to verse 11. The author says, We have much to say about this, but it's hard to, expl to explain because you're slow to learn. Why are you slow to learn? Check out the rest. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. But he's not saying this as an encouragement the way Peter did. Peter's encouraging young believers, dig in, get this pure spiritual milk, this nectar of the gospel, the basic things so that you can grow. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, you didn't grow. By now, you should be on solid food. In fact, you should be preparing food for others. But instead, you still got to be on the bottle. So you'd better get serious about the bottle so that you can grow into everything else. You need milk, he says, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the, with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant 
use, I would underline that, constant use, we talked about that last week, have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. We stay shallow when we just take what's easy. This is true in any area of life. Any area. It doesn't matter where, what you're doing. If you're playing board games, Candyland is easier than Monopoly. And I can tell you, I can have fun with Candyland for a little while. Very little while. Because I'm playing with my grandkids and I'm not going to let them win just because, you know, they're sweet. But I'm going to have a whole lot more fun playing with other grown-ups to play Monopoly or, or Ultimate Spoons, which gets a little violent around here, apparently. Right, Angelina? You know what I'm talking about. There's, there was some bloodshed, man. It was crazy. I'm going to have more fun with grown-up games than I am with little kid games. The people that you know at work who never get better than their first initial training in their first 30 days or so, you don't want to work with them anymore, right? Because they should be better by now. You've got that supervisor who's been working for the company for 20 years and they know less than you do. Anybody get annoyed with that? Say amen if that's you. Amen. Don't say amen if you're the supervisor. That's not what you're <laughs> So why do we tolerate that in ourselves in our Christian walk? Why do we tolerate being at the same place now that we were five years ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago? If you're in the same place in your growth, it's because you're not digging into the word, you're not choosing to pursue it, and you're not using it. Put it to work. Stop serving yourself and start serving others, and you will find that growth will happen. Why does my faith wane? Why do I get weak and start to struggle in my faith? Because it's not about the word and it's not about Jesus, it's about me. And if it's about me, I will always, always, always struggle with my faith. I've got to get past that. I've got to get past that shallowness, which brings us to this idea of worldliness. Here's the thing. <clears throat> if I'm going to deal with this worldliness issue, I, I must prioritize God's word. I have to choose to pursue it. I have to choose to want it. I have to choose to desire it. But I have to prioritize it. Jesus said the seed that fell among the thorns, it, it, the soil was fine. It was good. It takes, takes it in and it's getting its stuff. But it's got all these distractions from the thorns. This is the people who may even have good doctrine. Maybe you've done your Bible study and you've done all these different things. You're, you're at the Wednesday night discipleship group and, and you're coming to church every Sunday and you're even doing your personal studies, but you're so caught up in and consumed with the things of this world that you're distracted. And even in that good soil, Jesus says, they don't mature because of the thorns. They don't mature because they are focused on worries, riches, and pleasures, and all the temporary stuff that's so shiny and noisy in this world. I have to prioritize God's word so that all the things that are normal, all the things of this world, I choose to see as not worth comparing to God's word. God's plan for my life. Matthew 19, 23 points out that, this is Jesus talking again, points out that it's hard for a rich person to enter heaven. Why? Because you got stuff. It's pretty simple. The more stuff I got, 
the harder it is for me to travel. If it's a narrow road and I got a big trailer, I'm not going to fit down that narrow road. If it's like going through an eye of a needle, as Jesus said, it's, it's like a camel going through the eye of a needle, that's going to take a miracle. And I'm going to have to let go of my stuff. That doesn't mean you can't have wealth. It means the wealth can't have you. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have fear and, and anxiety in this life. We just talked about that with John the Baptist. Information gaps cause anxiety. John had an information gap. He had some anxiety, had some doubts. And Jesus defended him rather than condemning him. So it's not about that. It's about being okay with staying there. You're going to have thorns. You're going to have weeds in your life. Get rid of them. That, that seems really simplistic, right? But isn't that what a farmer does? I'm going to find the good soil. I'm going to take the soil that I have. I'm going to make it as good as I can. I'm going to enrich it. I'm going to put nutrients in there with fertilizer. I'm going to make sure it's got good water. And when the weeds come up, I'm going to get them out of there. I'm going to put some, uh, some herbicide down or uh, some, whatever means it takes. I'm going to try to do everything I can to get rid of anything that will diminish my harvest. I have to deal with this worldliness in my life. James 4.4 4 says, you foolish person. Don't you know that being friends with the world means you're an enemy to God? You're choosing the things of this life over Him. Set that worldliness aside. Matthew chapter 6 is one that we go to a lot. And we see it. It's talking about money and worry. And Jesus says, store up your treasures in heaven. And, you know... Not here on earth where wrath and must, moth and rust destroy. Strike that, reverse it. So uh, and don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Seek the kingdom of God. The rest will be taken care of by him. His point is not so much about money. He says very specifically, you can't serve both God and money. The point is about seeking God ahead of everything else. Whether you're talking about good things and your wealth and your blessings or hard things and all the difficulties. You know, I'm so caught up in my marriage is falling apart right now. Hey, I'm sorry. Focus on Christ. How could you say that? You're so heartless. How could you tell me that? I'm hurting right now. Yes, I understand. But the answer to a wound is not to keep messing with the wound. Go to the doctor. Focus on this great physician. Focus on the healer. But I lost my loved one. Yes, and you'll lose more loved ones. What are you going to do now? You're going to reject the only place that you can find life because you hurt too much? You're letting the world choke out the truth of God's word. We've got to come to terms with reality. We have to. We have to live with life as it is, not as we wish it were. Faith is getting my thinking aligned with what is actually real and true. So that I can be certain of what I don't see. And sure of that thing that's still out there, that it hasn't yet come to pass, but I know that it's true anyway. Because God has always, always been faithful. 
We have to deal with the hardness, the shallowness, and the worldliness. Where are you right now? Have you still not received the gospel of Jesus Christ? There are a lot of things that make us hard, that make us like a dry, packed path. Maybe it's because you're full of yourself. You've got it too good. Maybe it's because you're wounded and you have scars because life's been too hard. This is not about knowledge. This parable isn't talking about those who've never had seed sown. Please stop that. It's not talking about that. It's talking about you and me. Because if you're in this place, you've heard the gospel. What are you going to do about it? Have you received the gospel, but you're still a, a baby Christian? Now, if, if you are legitimately a baby Christian, great. That makes sense. Nobody gets mad at a baby for having to have his diaper changed and drinking from a bottle. But when you're 12, you should probably not be drinking from a bottle anymore. You don't need to have a sippy cup when you go to high school. Nobody likes that. How do we deal with that? This is, there's something seriously wrong, and we recognize this, don't we? When, when a child doesn't develop and grow, we recognize that there's a health issue. You've got to address that health issue. Don't tolerate shallowness in your life. And don't toler tolerate being consumed by the things of this world. Colossians 3, 1, 1 through 5 talks about setting our, our minds, our hearts on things above. Since we have been raised with Christ, if you've received the gospel, then you have died with him to yourself and you've been raised to a new life in him. If you've been raised with Christ, then set your mind, your eyes, your heart on things above where Christ is. Because that's where your life is. Your glory comes later. All this is temporary. This is just training. Or do you find yourself in this fourth category of, of soil? Fruitfulness. Now to be in this category, I must reproduce God's word. I must reproduce God's word. Now I want to start this with a very offensive statement by saying that if you find yourself, if you think that you are in this category of the good soil and you are not producing, this isn't you. You're in one of those other categories. Jesus doesn't give us the option of good soil receiving the good seed and nothing happening. Every single person who receives Jesus Christ is born again. You don't come to Christ and have him say, nope, sorry, you're not elect, you're not chosen. No, if you came to Christ, that's how you know you're elect. If you come to him, if you want to be saved, you can be saved. Every single person ever created can be saved by simply saying, Lord, I'm yours. I recognize my sins separate me from God and I want life. Please give it to me. And when you receive that seed, you're not perfect. You're born again. And you have to learn to grow. Just like a seed, just like an infant. But that's part of the process. And as you grow, if you are in this fourth category, it always, inevitably, to varying degrees, 
results in fruitfulness. In Matthew's version, and, and I believe Mark's also, he says some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold, but always production. Luke just goes right to a hundred, man, because maybe because he's an outsider. So when he got the gospel, it's like, boom, I can't imagine anything else. So big production, way more than was sown. What kind of fruit? Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Fruit of the Spirit. We're not even going to turn there for the sake of time. But these are the character qualities produced when the Holy Spirit of God is in you. Goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, uh, self-control. I lost count. There's nine of them. But, but they're all one. It's all one fruit. It's a collective thing. The reality is, if he's in you, he's going to come out of you. If he's not coming out of you, then you better start taking a look at, is he in me? Yes? Then what's wrong with my soil? Do I need to do some fertilizing? Do I need to do some watering? Do I need to pull some weeds out of my life so that I can grow and produce fruit? I'm going to have you turn to one last passage. There's so many that I would love to have you look at, but I'm just going to have you turn to Matthew. Again, if you're still in Luke, you're going back to the right. Matthew chapter 28. This is the command of Christ. Incidentally, if you have a program in front of you, I want to have you circle John 15. Uh, I've got those verses written down for you. I want to have you circle John 15 so you can look that up on your own. But I want to have us jump right to Matthew chapter 28. Many of you will know this as what is often called in church world the Great Commission. Starting with verse 18. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In other words, identifying them with this rebirth. Identifying them with, with God. And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Remember the writer of Hebrews saying, by now you ought to be teachers? How can I teach if I didn't learn? Now, I know that we got a big emphasis on collaborative learning and education today, but nobody's asking seven-year-olds to teach the class. Why? Because they're seven-year-olds. They don't know yet. But if you've got a seven-year-old who needs some tutoring, every high schooler ought to be able to help out with that. Because you ought to know more than a seven-year-old. That's exactly what the writer is saying. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. If you are mine, if my word is in you, and you are receiving it, pursuing it, prioritizing it over the things of this world, then you will be reproducing it by making disciples and teaching them these things so that they can grow and make disciples. In all this, I have to understand this reality. You have to understand this reality. It's the secret of the story. When the word takes root, it produces fruit. There are no other options. And it is controllable. I get to decide what I'm going to do with the soil of my heart. 
I get to choose whether I will pursue knowledge and understanding in God's word or whether I'm just going to take the easy route. I get to decide if I'm going to choose to value the things that are eternal over the things that don't last but are so shiny and noisy in my face. I get to make those decisions by God's grace. And if I do those things, then I will naturally reproduce God's word. I'm not doing it. He's doing it in me. So if it's not happening, I need to question what's happening going, leading up to that. Why does it matter? Because it's reality. Ultimately, that's what we're talking about with all this. It matters because it's reality. If I miss this, I miss everything. In fact, in Mark 4, uh, Mark 4.13, as Jesus is talking in the same setting, he tells the, the disciples, you, still, you don't get this parable? If you don't get this, how are you going to get anything? This is groundwork. This is basic stuff. Here's life. Anything else is dead. Healthy, fruitful life in him is God's desire for us and our whole purpose for living. Our whole purpose for living is to bring glory to him and to reflect him to the world around us. What difference is it going to make in my daily walk? Because when you leave here, you're not going to be sitting in church anymore. You've got to go out into the world. First off, salvation. If I don't get this, I don't receive that word, I don't have a relationship with God. But it gives me stability and assurance. And as I mentioned, a purpose. Something to live for. I don't produce it. He produces it in me. But if I'm not producing, I've got to, I got to examine there's a memory verse for you, John 15, 8. It says, This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. That's how we know. That biggest fruit is love. If you're not loving, you're not his disciple. May you and I each embrace real life by receiving, pursuing, prioritizing, and reproducing God's word as we live every day. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you have given us your word. You've revealed truth to us in a way that is astonishingly easy to understand. Throughout the ages, You've kept it veiled. And now, Lord, you've made it clear. You revealed yourself in Christ. And you've seen fit for us to be able to actually read your word. Help us to receive it, Lord. Help us not to harden our hearts. Help us to pursue it, to seek after it to do anything that needs to be done to be able to get deeper with our roots into your word. Father, help us once we've received it, once we've chosen to learn more and more about you through your word. Lord, help us <laughs> to set our eyes higher, to lift our gaze, to stop being caught up here in the matrix, but to live in the real world, recognizing that what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal.
so that we might produce in our lives the characteristics of Christ so that others will receive your word and there will be a harvest for your glory, not for ours. We pray this in the precious name of your son, Jesus.